Well, good morning. I want to thank the folks who use those gifts to lead us into worship. That is exciting. My name is James. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Cape Bible Chapel. We've got a lot of work to do today. So grab your Bible or open your Bible app. And dial in with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to look through verses 1 to 13 today. And we're going to talk about temptation. That make you squirm in your seat just a little bit? Is that a topic you feel real comfortable sharing details about? Probably not, right? So that's why we're going to talk about it today. It's critically important that we address the fact that we are tempted. And when we're tempted, Jesus has provided the way. He's provided the example for how us to overcome that temptation. That's the core of what we're going to see in this passage today. Jesus is going to have this huge victory over Satan and provide us the example of how to overcome temptation. So lots of really valuable, practical things for us to embrace because when we're honest, we struggle with temptation. Matter of fact, I could do this. I could pick any one of you here and call you up on stage and have you stand next to me and tell you where you're tempted. Do you believe that? You want me to do it? Never had less eye contact than I've had right now. No, no, nobody wants me to do that. I understand. But here's the deal. I could do it, and it's not because I'm a mind reader. I'm not the guy at the circus who guesses your height and weight and age. That guy kind of freaks me out. It's not that. I'm not a stalker. Here's the reason I could do it, because I'm tempted in the same way. Every one of us is tempted in the same way we're all tempted. Look with me at the screen, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. This is it. This is the context of the Apostle John explaining that we're not supposed to fall in love with this broken world because if we're Christ followers, there's better coming. <laughs> there's better to come. And he summarizes for us every area where we're going to struggle. Look at this. For all that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. None of that is from the Father. It's from the world. So that's it. When we're tempted to sin, it's going to be in one of these three areas. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. And we talked a lot last week about the comparison that Luke wants us to see between the first Adam and Jesus. And so if we had time, we could go back and walk through every specific area where Adam and Eve struggled and sinned. But we don't have to do that. We don't have to walk individually through them because they fit in these three categories. In our passage today... Luke summarizes Jesus' temptation. He focuses on these three broad categories. These aren't the only temptations that Jesus faced, right? He was in the desert being continually tempted for 40 days. But these three are real temptations that Satan used that highlight these general areas where Adam failed and where we fail. Every one of us struggles with temptation. You just think of that scene in the garden of Eden, there Adam and Eve are in this lush paradise, all the food they could ever want, but with instruction not to eat from one certain tree. And that was too much temptation because they wanted what they wanted, and so they fell to the lust of the flesh. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, we see that delicious fruit, not only yummy, but what? Beautiful as well. What's that? Lust of the eyes. Then we read Satan tricked Adam and Eve. So they believed that by eating the fruit of the tree of life, they'd become wise like God. What's that? Pride. Spiritual pride. So as we address temptation today, there's nothing new under the sun. It's going to come in one of these three areas. 
And in this text, what we're going to see is Jesus returning to the battlefield. He goes back to the place where Adam failed. He's led by the Holy Spirit to go and win this incredible victory where the first Adam was defeated, but not so Jesus can get the glory. Not so he can brag about how cool he is or how powerful he is. This is so intentional. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into this fight for a specific purpose, and I don't want us to miss it. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. One of the big reasons Jesus came to be Emmanuel, to be God with us that we talk about as Christmas, is so that we could know how to overcome temptation. Passage reads, Therefore he, this is Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That's the incarnation we've talked about. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He came to make propitiation. It's a big word. means to satisfy the penalty for sin by going to the cross. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. That's one of the reasons that God became man. He came to rescue us, came to come to our aid when we're tempted. The author of Hebrews explains this further, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He says, For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Have you ever been in a time of need when it comes to temptation? Of course you have. See, if we're Christ followers, we we can't read this account in Luke we're getting ready to read and go, wow, but that was tough for Jesus. But I don't think that passage applies to me. Jesus, you know, he, he can turn stones into bread. I can't do that. There's nothing for me to learn here. I'm sure I'll never be tempted like that. Yes, you will. Not to turn stones into bread, but to place your own comfort above whatever God is trying to teach you. We need to study and apply this passage. We need to understand how Jesus was able to win where Adam lost. We need to know how to be led by the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation. And some of the teaching in the Bible about temptation is super easy to discern. It's still hard to do, but it's easy to understand. Ever heard the old joke about the guy's arm was hurt in two places? He goes to the doc. He says, Doc, I think I broke my arm in two places. And the doc said, I'd stay away from those two places. That's part of the strategy, isn't it, to flee temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, that's what the Apostle Paul warns. Run from temptation. Avoid those places where you're going to break your arm. Those are helpful. Those are practical verses. But what we see in this passage today is totally different. Because the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into this temptation. He isn't supposed to flee from it. He's supposed to fight a battle and win as an example for us of how to overcome temptations because God is going to allow them in our lives. We're going to have them. You have them. I have them. And he's going to use them to draw us closer to him. This passage today really illustrates what the Apostle James is trying to teach in James chapter 4 and verse 7 where he says, Submit, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. See, that's the flip side of this temptation coin. We either need to flee the devil and flee temptation, or we need to stand firm in the trial and obey God, and we'll make the temptation flee. We'll make Satan flee. So that's the big question then, how we do that. You know who's always a good case study with questions like that? It's Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. Let's look at this passage and see how Jesus handles being tempted by the devil. Follow along with me. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Our hero, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Okay, so we've got to make some observations before we jump into these three temptations. The text says Jesus is coming back from being baptized. It's in the Jordan River. And when he was baptized, that was when the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, publicly descended on him like a dove. Now, right after that, the Spirit leads him out in the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. And we don't have a whole lot of time to camp out on this here, but it's a little hard to miss. The devil is real, right? Evil's not some impersonal force in our lives. Satan is real. Now, hear me on this. He's not as powerful as God. He lacks all the incommunicable attributes of God. He doesn't have omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence. But on this fallen planet, as we deal with temptation, he's real. Now, his eventual defeat is certain. If you want to skip to the back of the book and read, you'll know this for sure. God wins. Satan loses. He he is crushed. But while we live on this earth as fallen people, Satan's going to have a field day. Three different times in the Gospel of John, John refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God, with a lowercase g, the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, he's real. Now, I don't know where you stand then on this continuum, but I want to make sure that we don't camp out on either end of it. Okay, here's the line. You can either be a Satan maximalist, or you can be a Satan minimalist. And so over here, if you're a maximalist, well, then you believe that every every bad thing that happens in the world, that's Satan's fault. And that's just not true. I know that. I bet you know that. There have been many times in my life where Satan didn't have to pay any attention to me at all. I was doing a fine job in losing to the battles of my flesh. I I was in selfishness and in pride. And, and, And so here's the deal. Satan didn't need to mess with me. Every bad thing that happens, every accident, that's not Satan. He's not that big. So we can't camp out over here. But we can make a mistake in the other direction the same way. We can go all the way over here and go, Satan's not real. Now, come on. (laughs) We can't read the Bible and interpret it literally and land here. So this is wrong, and way over there is wrong, and somewhere in the middle is the reality. Satan is the ruler of this world, but, and Satan knows this, his authority to rule is both delegated and temporary. Satan's out there, and he's on a leash. It's a long, long leash as the ruler of this fallen world, but the God of the universe is the one holding the leash. 
now? Knowing that, doesn't that lead to this question, well, why does God even allow this at all? Why not just yank Satan and throw him right into the lake of fire right now? He could do that. And that's a great question. I really believe it is. But it's one that's important for us to understand. I've alluded to this so many times before. And it has to do with the fact that God works all things together for good. Answer this. If everything in your life went perfectly well all the time, who would you give the credit to? Seriously, who? Would we thank God? Or would we say things like, I am the smartest, strongest, most good-looking man in the entire universe? That's what I'd do. Now, if you're not like me, then you can take a couple minutes and thank God for that right now. But the truth is, in this, God gets more glory. Hear me on this. We are more in awe of Jesus when we live abundant lives on this earth in spite of the presence of the ruler of this world. God gets more glory in that when we see how he's at work in trials and temptation than he would if he went ahead and just crushed Satan right now. Because we grow through trials and temptation. I guarantee you this. If you ask anybody, I'll ask you right now and you think, when in your life have you grown the most? Nobody ever answers that question by going, gosh, last week when you preached that genealogy, said all those names right, man, that was great, you know. Nobody ever says that. It's always, 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 always when God brought me through that huge trial. When God walked with me while I was being tempted and I was able to cling to him and he provided the example for me to overcome temptation. That's when we grow. So what are we learning from these observations? Satan's real. Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by him. And now as we jump into this text, we're going to see that Satan is a big, fat liar. We're going to see just how crafty he is. And if we've been reading our Bible, we know this already. We know this from the way the serpent twisted things around back in Genesis chapter 3. And I said this over and over when we studied Galatians together. The best false teaching, the kind that gets people to buy into heresy, is the kind that combines just a little bit of truth with some really serious error. You've got to understand, Satan's out there fishing, and he's got a huge hook. It's big enough to snag us and reel us in, and it's dangerous, but on the tip of the hook, he's got some really nice bait. He wants to bait the hook with some truth and get us to swallow the whole thing, and this is how the bait works, and I guarantee you've seen this before. Oh, you have physical needs? Well, it's okay. Just go ahead and give in and have sex before marriage. Or you can watch pornography. Everybody does it. It's okay. Why would you deprive yourself? Life's short. You should be having fun. All this focus on the bait. No discussion. Diseases you can get. Pregnancy. How pornography reprograms your mind because of the images that get stuck in there. No talk about the consequences of giving a part of yourself away outside of the design that God has for marriage. No, it's all good. Enjoy yourself. See the bait and the hook? That's why Satan is the father of lies. That's what we're going to see in this text. In every temptation, Satan's scheme is to try and get us to satisfy legitimate needs, legitimate goals, in illegitimate ways. Oh, are you stressed? 
well, why don't you have a drink, just one drink? Why don't you smoke weed just one time? Why don't you, why don't you just take a few pills? Never any talk about the feeling of hopelessness that comes with addiction. Never any talk about lost jobs, or lost relationships, or ruined lives. We're not going to talk about the hook. We just want to talk about the bait. It's a lot to set up. But now we can work through these temptations pretty quickly because we know Satan's strategy. He wants Jesus, and he wants us to take shortcuts. He wants us to try to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. So in our text, Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's fasted for 40 days. It's on this spiritual fast where he's saying, God is better than food. My Father is what I want. He's the one I desire. And the text says Jesus ends the fast, and he's hungry. That's not too hard to interpret, is it? Jesus is hungry. You would be too. But look at what happens next. This is the first temptation we're going to look at, the lust of the flesh, verses 3 and 4. The devil said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Okay, so Jesus is hungry. He's ended his fast. Satan tells him to turn some stones into bread so he can eat something. Let me ask you this. If you're hungry and you're not fasting, is it a sin to eat bread? I mean, say what you want about good carbs and bad carbs and gluten-free or whatever. I'm just saying, is it a sin to eat bread? No. And this is Jesus. Could he have turned stones into bread? He turns water into wine. I'm thinking he can do this here. So where's the temptation? Jesus is hungry. He can make the bread. Where's he going to get off track here? There are two huge areas we've got to look at. Number one, who's telling Jesus to do this? It's not the Sunday school answer this time. See, Jesus came to earth, and he was single-minded in his purpose. Jesus came to obey the will of God the Father. If God told him to turn some stones into bread, Jesus is on it. But God isn't the one giving this instruction. So the temptation there is to obey, and if we obey, we truly worship someone other than God. And that's going to play out in this lust of the flesh problem. Satan wants Jesus to meet his legitimate hunger need in an illegitimate way, by listening to the father of lies. And there's a second part to this temptation, and there's a couple ways for us to sneak up on it. We read this passage, we hear this passage, and we see Satan saying, if you're the son of God. And that looks to us like a temptation to doubt your identity. Now we're going to see in a second, that's not really a temptation for Jesus in this passage, right? He's pretty solid with his identity. But that can be a temptation for us when we read this. We're going to look at the correct interpretation here in a minute. But God's word is so amazing, if we just look at this at face value, we can still learn something. That's how amazing God is. Because for us, as people, we let our identity determine a lot of things about us. If we feel like a victim, I'm always getting taken advantage of, that's going to become our identity, right? We wander around saying things like, well... I really want to trust in God, but he keeps putting these heavy burdens on me. And then one of your well-meaning friends come along and they say, well, are you sure God loves you? Because, man, you're really going through the ringer. This is the story of Job in the Old Testament. And what happens, we can let that start to affect our identity. 
So let me be so clear on this. Don't miss this. If you're here today as a Christ follower, if you have a relationship with God that's by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, then you can know what your identity is. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. That's it. So don't let Satan or anybody else try and tell you differently. That's who you are. So on the surface, maybe it looks like Satan is trying to get Jesus to question his identity like he does with us. He says, if you're the son of God. But that's not what he really means in this passage. When we look at that phrase in the Greek, it's a conditional sentence, just like it is for us. It starts with if. But in the Greek, there are two different ways to deal with conditional sentences. They can be used to imply something that's contrary to the fact, or they can stand alone, and you have to interpret them literally. There's an example of using condition to state a fact that's contrary in John chapter 11. Are you familiar with that story? It's Lazarus' death, and Jesus weeps over his friend. But as Jesus goes, both of Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they go to him, And do you remember what they say to him? If you had been here. And what they mean was, if you had been here, but you weren't. They're using that to state something that's contrary to the fact. That's not what Satan is doing here in Luke chapter 4. Satan's not truly saying, if you're the son of God, but you're not. Satan knows full well who Jesus is. What he's really doing here is baiting this hook with this lust of the flesh temptation. Meeting legitimate need in an illegitimate way. He's saying, since you're the son of God, since you're divine, then why should you have to suffer? Jesus, why should you be hungry? Why don't you just make some dinner rolls out of these rocks here? See, it's trying to meet that legitimate need in an illegitimate way. He's trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut here. So what does Jesus do? He quotes a Bible verse. But understand, he truly does a lot more than that. He quotes some scripture, and he's thinking about the context. He's thinking about the lesson that we learn that accompanies that verse. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, and the context there is the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years and God providing food for them. The big takeaway here is when we're obedient, God will meet our needs. We have to obey God. Obeying God's more important than eating some bread. That's the issue with Adam and Eve in the garden. They chose to eat the yummy fruit instead of obeying God. This whole temptation is about a lot more than bread. It's about obedience to God. So for us, when our situation is bleak, when it's dire, in those areas where we're most susceptible to falling to temptation, will we be obedient. When we ask God, what are you trying to teach me? What's your will for my life? Please share with me because I don't want to take a shortcut to try and meet a lust of the flesh need. That's the broad view of what Jesus is saying here. Man does not live by taking shortcuts to try and satisfy physical needs. Man lives, truly lives abundantly through obeying God. Next temptation the lust of the eyes. These will go faster now that we know Satan's strategy here. Look at verses 5 to 8. Devil leads Jesus up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. They said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. 
It's been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want if you worship me. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Satan tells on himself here. He knows his power has been delegated. He knows it's temporary. He knows he's on a leash, so he shoots to the moon here. I don't know how we could think Jesus will fall for this, but this one works pretty well on us. He says, I'll give you everything that looks nice if you worship me. Lust of the eyes, as far as you can see, this temptation spills into control and power and prosperity. And because we're selfish people, baiting the hook with those things really appeals to us. Satan shows up and he preaches glory and power and control to Jesus, which is kind of funny if you think about it, since he already has those things. So what's the temptation? Got to understand this. This is devious. The temptation is, hey, Jesus, you could have all these things that you see without going to the cross. I'll give you it all right now. For a short time, it's mine to give. All you got to do is worship me. I can give you a crown without the cross. I can give you kingdoms without the tomb. Hook's pretty easy to see there, isn't it? But we fall for this one all the time. When we sin, when temptation leads us to sin, listen, we have a worship problem. We're choosing to worship something other than God. And it can be Satan, but remember, we can get ourselves in this mess. It can be comfort that we worship, or pleasure, or success, or power, whatever it is. We make that our God. And the issue with putting anything, anything, in the place where God is supposed to be is false glory. Satan promises Jesus the glory of being in power, and that would be false glory if he'd achieve it by worshiping Satan. Now, you know where this plays out for us every day? It's when we ask God to share. We say, I love you, God. I want to follow you, Jesus, but I also want to follow making a lot of money. I love you, God. I want to follow you, Jesus, but I also want to follow my addictions. I love you, God. I want to love you with my whole heart, but I also want to elevate my wife and my kids. I want to love them with my whole heart, too. How many whole hearts do you have? See, it can be good-sounding things that we can start to worship. That's a real temptation here. Satan doesn't even say, hey, you need to deny your father God. Satan doesn't ask Jesus to become an atheist. He just says, why don't you just elevate me over him? It's hard to believe we'd fall for it. It was worded like that, isn't it? But we struggle with this one. We struggle. What do we say? Well, well I need a house. I, I need to make money to live. I've got to have a job. My job is stressful. I need to be able to unwind and relax. And hear me, none of those things are wrong. They can be like bread when you're hungry. They, they can be neutral. They don't have to be bad. But when we elevate those things or anything over the position that God should have in our lives, if we're Christ followers, then we're worshiping those things. And Jesus responds, nope, can't do it. Quotes Deuteronomy again, chapter 6, verse 13. He says, worship and serve God only. That interprets itself, right? Okay, last temptation. Pride of life. We see this in verses 9 to 13. 
devil led Jesus to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Does this scare you? Satan knows the Bible. Satan quotes some scripture, but he's the father of lies. He doesn't believe it. He's trying to twist this scripture to accomplish his purpose. The devil takes Jesus to the temple, and he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11, 12. And I hope we learn from this, sometimes the bait will look like religion, right? But if in our religion we're taking the Bible verses out of context, we're misinterpreting or misapplying them, then we're falling for this particular scheme of the enemy, and that is so bad. So what's the specific temptation here? How is Satan appealing to pride? Because it's a little tricky, but it really helps us to understand that conditional nature of the if statement that I talked about earlier. Because here Satan again says, if you're the Son of God. He doesn't mean, but you're not. He's saying, since you're the Son of God, oh, Jesus, why on earth would you have to suffer? This is an appeal to pride, and this one is so dangerous. Because Satan's saying, oh, Jesus, if you go through with your Father's plan, you're going to be beaten and scourged and crucified and die on the cross. That's horrible, but, but wait, Jesus... Uh, doesn't your father's word say there in Psalm 91, not even your feet will be hurt? See, the bait on the hook isn't gross. It's supposed to appeal to us. It's not wickedness. It's comfort and safety and pleasure. So Satan says, well, that verse in the psalm, it says God will protect his faithful servants. You just said you want to worship him and serve him only, so why should you be hurt? It's so crafty. It appeals to our pride, and we fall for this one. We fall for this one quickly because we're prideful. What does Jesus do? He quotes some more scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. And what he says is this. Yeah, you've misinterpreted that passage, Satan. You're wrong. God's point in Psalm 91 is not test him to make him prove who he is. The point in Psalm 91 is faithfully serve out of obedience and God will always, always be there with you and for you in your time of need. So Jesus helps him get it right. He says, don't put God to the test. We need to pause for just a second there and make sure we understand the relationship between temptation and testing. Said at the start of the sermon, temptation can come in two ways, right? Comes from within us, our battle with the flesh, or from without. Ever since the fall of man, that's how we get it. Inside of us or from our enemy. Temptation is just that seduction to do evil. It's that allure of meeting legitimate needs or goals by taking shortcuts. And if we take the shortcuts, we won't learn the lessons that God wants us to learn. We won't be able to grow the way he wants us to grow. And so truthfully then, every temptation is a test where God is testing what is in our heart. When Jesus referred back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 in that first temptation, 
where he said man doesn't live on bread alone, what do you think the chances are he knew Deuteronomy 8 too as well? It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Why would God allow that temptation, that kind of trial to humble and test you? What's the test? In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. James chapter 1, verse 13 tells us clearly, God never tempts us to do evil, but he does test us. He tests us because he wants so desperately for us to get it. He wants us to draw close to him, to submit to him, to abide in him, to live an abundant relationship with him, to have eternal life with him. He's the with us God. He wants to be with us. God does test us. He never tempts us to do evil. And we're not supposed to test God. Because when we test God, what we're truly saying is, I don't believe you. I don't believe you, God. You're going to have to prove it. God doesn't need to prove himself to you or to me. How'd that go for Job in the Old Testament? We talked about his story. Job kept on and on and on with God, and finally God answered, were you there when I created everything? I mean, I woke up this morning, I took a breath on the only planet in the solar system that can support life. I should be over asking God to prove himself to me. Jesus tells Satan, don't try to put God to the test. Then in verse 13, having been thoroughly crushed, humiliated, defeated, Satan ran away. His little devil tail between his legs never returned. The end, right? No. No, he left so he could come up with some more attractive bait. He left to go wander around on this planet and figure out how to twist some more scripture, and he is prowling around waiting, just waiting for opportune times to test us. I've shared with you before the acronym you learn in Alcoholics Anonymous, HALT. It stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are the times when we're most susceptible. Those are the times when that bait is going to look so good and we're going to ignore the hook. But Jesus fights and wins this battle that Adam could not. And now Satan is wanting to come and take a run at us, so what can we do? Well, we've seen the application in the example of Jesus in this passage. But let me share one verse that I think will kind of help put a bow on this present. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul addressing Christ followers in Corinth, and he's talking about forgiveness in context, why he forgives people. He says, I do it so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Now, we're not either. See, the father of lies, the ruler of this fallen world, he has a scheme. He has a strategy. Tempt people to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways, by any means necessary, by appealing to the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes the pride of life. That's his strategy. So if we're going to submit to God and resist the devil and make him flee, we got to have a strategy. We need to have a scheme. So let me suggest real quickly four things we have to do to have this application strategy. They're the things we see Jesus doing in this passage. Number one, spend time alone with God. Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness. I'm not saying we got to do that. But what was the motivation? 
What was the point in fasting? He was spending time alone with God, concentrating on his relationship with his father, saying, you're what I need. You're what I want, God, not lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's you. We need to spend time alone with God. Number two, we've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit to where we're living our lives just operating out of the overflow. God is pouring out on us. In Galatians chapter 5, and verse 16, Paul tells us one of our favorite instructions, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, I love that verse for this reason. It doesn't say we won't have the desires. Being tempted in and of itself is not sin. It says when we're led by the Spirit, when we operate out of that overflow, then we won't fall to the temptation. That's where the sin is. So spend time alone with God. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number three, know God's Word. We see Jesus quoting Scripture, not as something to throw at Satan. He quotes it as a fruit of his relationship with God. He quotes Deuteronomy. How many verses do I have memorized out of Deuteronomy? This is convicting. And we can't be content just to memorize the verses. We have to know the context. We have to know how to correctly interpret the verses because that's where we see Jesus really crushing Satan. Not just that he quoted the verse, but he knew how to use it to refute the heresy and the false teaching. So we can apply those first three as part of our strategy, but then there's just one more. Because even if we do those things well, we spend time with God, we know God's Word, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we've got to remember this fourth one, especially, especially if we're doing those things well. We have a big victory over temptation. That may be the time. That may be the opportune time for Satan to visit. Sometimes, if we have a big victory, we'll let our guard down. So number four is we have to be always prepared for temptation. What happened right before Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted? He got baptized. Holy Spirit descended on him like a a dove. His dad affirmed him as the Son of God. Big win! Huge victory immediately after that the temptation. Happened to Jesus. It can happen to us. We need to always be ready for temptation to arise. We can do this. We can come up with this strategy. Satan has a scheme. We're going to have to have one if we're going to be able to learn and apply this passage and resist the devil and make him flee. Did a lot of reading this week, and I read this story. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it was awfully good story of a young girl. I thought of Faith Soch when I read this. Young girl who was asked, does Satan ever tempt you to do wrong? And she responded so sweetly. She said, oh, yes, he does. But when he knocks at the door of my heart, I just ask Jesus to go get the door. And when Jesus opens the door and Satan sees him, he runs away. That's out of the mouths of babes, but... but Even in the simple faith of that little girl, she totally gets this lesson in Luke chapter 4, doesn't she? Even the mightiest Christ follower is going to struggle with temptation. We are no match for Satan. But Jesus has already defeated him. He's already crushed him. 
And Christ's victory over Satan and over temptation proves that he's the Son of God. Proves that he is mighty and powerful enough to rescue us, to come to our aid in the time of temptation, to save us, anybody who calls on his name. And when we do that, when we profess faith in him, then we can abide in him, and he'll be with us. He'll walk with us every day and enable us to overcome temptation because of his victory. I hope you leave with that image. We can ask Jesus to get the door when Satan comes knocking. Let's pray. Daddy, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible example out of Luke chapter 4 of how to overcome temptation. God, there are times when we will flee. We need to flee. We understand that in the passages that Paul gives us. But in this, we understand there are times when you desire to draw us close and walk with us and hold us and teach us things and grow us by allowing us to overcome temptation by just submitting to you and obeying you. And then the devil will flee. And he'll come back. But God, this is the beauty of being in relationship with you. When we're with you, you're with us. And you've already fought and won this battle. God, help us to lean in on you. Help us to apply these things. Help us to have a strategy for how to overcome temptation. God, we ask that for your glory, not for our own. We love you, Lord. Ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.